So I think before we get too much into it, because we already got, uh, uh, we're already off to a good start. I think uh, we can start this thing off. You just want to do a little quick introduction, synopsis of who you are, how you came to be where you are now, and then we can get this party started. Sure, sure. Sounds good, man. So um, I kind of started off in, I think, a way that a lot of us who are attracted to spirituality start off. I started off a neurotic mess, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a real wreck, a real train wreck uh, of thoughts. And then uh, thoughts trying to silence thoughts with other thoughts. And that's a mess. And uh, in my 20s and my 30s, it, some maybe a little bit in my 30s, um, it, it, was, uh, it, it was kind of the background of my existence was this um, kind of tragedy of just thinking and anxiety. And so I thought, well, I'll get a degree in psychology. That should help, you know? And I ended up getting a PhD in psychology and that was a little help, (laughs) quite a bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But what I found through this whole adventure was that Eastern philosophy just had far more guidance than any kind of academic information was able to give me. And so I started reading Alan Watts, who has been a huge influence in my life. I'd say he's been kind of my single mentor. And um, and he was able to inspire me in ways that he was able to kind of go around the thinking mind to realize you can't solve a thinking problem with more thinking. And it sort of opened up my consciousness to a much bigger world than what I had been living in previously, which was this kind of little clothed off neurotic mess. And once I realized that, I realized that the neurotic mess wasn't even me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, so I, I learned to become much more at ease with like anxiety. So if anxiety happened, I realized, well, that's just the body doing what it does sometimes, you know? Yeah. And and I, and I learned to watch thoughts. And, and so I ended up, uh, you know, still finishing a degree and I became a professor. And through the last 20 years, what I've done is study consciousness kind of as a scientist. I, I, I definitely have one foot in the science of it and neuropsych. And, and that helps a lot of people because their thinking mind gives a lot of credit to neuroscience. You know, if you start off with neuroscience and you say, look, this is a neuroscientific theory, automatically their thinking mind is taken off guard. It's kind of like, oh, okay. You know, it's not going to, you know, rejected outright it's going to be much more open to the possibility yes and like you've read the book and so i I start off with the neuroscience and and then i slowly bring in eastern philosophy and i like to end on eastern philosophy and Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's kind of a combination it's a kind of you know kind of some people see it as a you know kind of a colliding of worlds but I actually think neuroscience and philosophy and uh, Eastern philosophy fit in wonderfully. I think they're a beautiful companion to each other because when I started off on this, I thought, well, maybe neuroscience would tell me who I am. And a lot of people are on this quest. They think if I can just dissect the brain, if I take the brain, I'll find out the mystery of who I am and I'll find out the mystery of what consciousness is. In my trip, I found the exact opposite. I found that neuropsych is a wonderful thing to find out who we're not. <laughs> a wonderful thing to find out what consciousness isn't. Mm. And so that's been my trip and that's what I'm doing now. And I'm writing books and doing podcasts and really just, um, 
it, it feels like it's, it's an interesting ride because I really don't, we talk sometimes about making choices and free will and things, but to me, it really feels like I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> like this morning, I, I, I was, I'm just finishing up this book and, and it, it just seems like quotes just come to me. Like I'll just stumble on something. It's like, and it, it just all fits. And I'm like, oh, so it really feels like it's the universe just sort of like putting this all together. And I'm just sort yeah. of like, like a secretary. I'm just taking notes and, you know, just, mm. you know. It's like a servant. Yeah, I'm just serving it and, uh, you know, putting it away that I think um, some other people will be open to, not everyone, but, um, you know, you put it out there and, and some people connect with it. And, uh, and I have had some people who will uh, kind of be really into the neuroscience. So the thinking mind is it's a very heavy kind of thing. And when they get to the Eastern philosophy part, then they just, it just, everything shuts down. Mm -hmm. I understand that. That's completely, um, uh, I totally get it. Um, it's almost as if some people are almost too smart, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're too, they're too brilliant, you know, and a brilliant mind is a difficult thing for Eastern philosophy to ever penetrate. Mm. It almost seems like we have to decondition ourselves from the Western paradigm in a way, like you it, said, like we have to figure out what we're not in order to figure out what we are first. It is. It's a deconstructive process, which sounds negative, but it's really just tearing those layers of illusion, you know, taking one layer, you know, who am I? And then you realize, well, society told me I'm this. And then you get through that layer and you're like, no, that's not it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I was just something mm -hmm. I was taught. It was a convention. It was a maybe a useful tool because, you know, when I meet people, I'll say, yeah, I'm Chris and I'm professed. You know, I, I give them that line. And yes. it is useful, you know, but, <laughs> and, but it's not, but you realize that, you know, it's like language. It has a certain use to it, but it's not real. It's yeah. Not really am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like you have to use your, uh, your character in this game. You still have to play the game once you realize it's a game. But I think once you, that's just having a leg up once you know that it is a game. And once you know that we're not, we're essentially not this body, we are this body but we're not all this body. We encompass more than just this body. I see myself more so as um, just like a process. And when I'm in, as I'm in this body as Gary Haskins, I'm just like you said, witnessing this process in a way. I'm still partaking in it, uh, but there's still behind the scenes is still a lot more going on than just this meat suit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the kind of the idea of a meat suit. It fits so well. It just because it is, it's something that we're putting on, you know. Yeah. And it's a temporary thing. And this meat suit's gonna, you know, it's, it's maybe got 30 years, I don't know, maybe you know, two hours, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but the meat suit is limited. And and of course the thinking mind identifies with the meat suit, so it gets very terrified of death. Mm -hmm. And but then like you said, if you can identify with the process, this thing that is again, it's not a thing at all, it's a process which uh, is, is so much more than what we think we are. And if you can identify with that, which the thinking mind has a terrible time identifying with it, it it's just, you know, for so many reasons that just, uh, you know, thinking mind can deal with one thought at a time. You know, that's the limitations. And, and mm. all research looks at attention and says, well, we can pay attention to one thing at a time. But then there's all these clever little hints, you know, these breadcrumbs that kind of lead us back to, no, no, you really are that process. 
You're not yeah. the meat, you're the process. And what I enjoy doing is, and you know, we talk about the game. And to me, the game is the game of, uh, I kind of think of it as kind of this cosmic escape room. So you think <laughs> of like, you know, if you're in an escape room, it's like you find clues and then, you, you know, you find your way out. And our co cosmic escape room is, you know, we think we're this thinking mind in this meat suit. And so, okay, well, how do we get out of that? And there's all these interesting clues. Eastern philosophy has left us, neuroscience has left us numb. And when you put them all together, you realize, you know, you've never been in the escape room. You've always mm -hmm. been outside looking in. Yeah. Like really digging the show, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that encompasses the whole show, the happiness and the suffering. Yes. It seems daunting, right? to have that idea to people that have no clue what we're talking about right now, it seems like a daunting thing to be like, what do you mean I'm not my body? It just seems scary, right? But it's actually the opposite. It's actually salvation in a way. It's almost like, oh, um, I, I feel thankful that I'm not just this yeah. suffering meat suit. I'm more than that, you know? It's like <laughs> the image of like someone going through the airport and they've got, they're carrying all this luggage, you know? And it's just this really, burdensome kind of thing and then you realize that the luggage is so you put it down it's not me yeah and you feel like this huge relief because what a terrifying thought that i am this meat suit i mean to me that <laughs> that's just i mean you know no wonder people have anxiety no wonder people um worry you know and and no no wonder that you know the greatest the real plague of modern humans is anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. of course, I mean, that's the natural consequence. If you think this is who you are, and I think I'm this meat suit, and I think of my job, you know, and then I get mm -hmm. fired. Well, who am I? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Sick. And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, who am I after I get sick? Mm -hmm. you know, it's all very temporary. The, the, the thinking mind lives in a really temporary, um, well, it lives in time. Mm -hmm. you know? And as soon as you live in time, then everything has, you know, a beginning and an end. Mm, wow, that's good. That's a good one. Yeah. Once you and, live in time, everything has a beginning and an end. But once you step outside of time, there is no end. There's no beginning. There's no beginning. Wow, yeah. That's great. And, yet, and that's that's the putting down the luggage. And that's the kind of like, you know, man. Mm. You know? And to me, that's the kind of way it can become really entertaining when you see this as a game. Yeah. So when I look back at all the times that I was terribly anxious, I can't help but to sort of laugh at that. <laughs> no, because that was the game. Yeah. I, was, you know, I was playing the game at a really interesting level, you know. And Alan Watts pointed out one time, he said, you know, we and this is back in the 60s when he was talking about, you know, we have some people out there real squares and they're and their business types and and you know, um, and he's like, they're playing a fantastic version of the game. <laughs> because they're being exactly who they're not yeah you know mm -hmm. we, we are this timeless process playing that were these limited meat suits and thinking minds yep and that's a fantastic game when you get into it. it yeah it's the game of brahman and atman it's we've known about this for thousands of years and we're just using different terminology now <laughs> and that's exactly it. It's a lot of different, and, and shamans, you go back to the shamans, the sh you know, human beings have known this. And to me, the fascinating thing is that when you look historically, when we started thinking, which is about 40 to 70,000 years ago, that just happens to be the time when shaman, shamans started popping up on the globe. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, the, the, when we first started thinking is when we counterbalanced it with spirituality, mm. you know? And mm. so even though we got into this kind of cosmic kind of escape room, we at this very same time had a couple very special people who were kind of like, you know, if you've ever been in one of these escape rooms, if you pound on the wall, there's some dude out there that give you a hint. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the same way, there's like, there are people who will give you hints. Through mm. And I think the shamans have done that and the uh, a lot of the Vedantas and the, uh, you know, the, the Buddhist and, and, and they're all out there giving us yeah. kind of crumbs. Some people even say um, there's parallels with that in Western philosophy as well, like Christianity, like you can take it at face value of the whole story of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and, you know, the actual face value of the story that but people also say that there's mysticism behind those words that allude to uh, the same philosophies as Eastern philosophy of Brahman and Atman and realizing that you are the father and the son. And I don't know too much about it, so I'm not going to try and get too much into it, but there are similar um, viewpoints in Western mysticism as well. Oh, you know, Alan Watts pointed out that, you know, if Jesus had run through the streets of India saying like, I am God, everyone would have said, yeah, yeah, we know. (laughs) (laughs) that's funny that's good and so uh i think there's all kinds of connections with this and but you know one of the things i do particularly in the first part of the book is i focus so much on the thinking mind and how the thinking mind creates division and categories and it's very difficult if not impossible to think without thinking in categories and separation and division so naturally there were these shamans who were showing us that all of this is an interconnected process but at the same time, the thinking mind kept saying, no, this is separate. This, and so all the religions sort of, you know, focused on different things and thinking minds had turned them into um, things that seem very separate from one another. Mm. Uh, you know, once you kind of practice not thinking and getting in and digging that kind of process mode of consciousness, then it's very easy to go through the religions and to go, oh, yeah, this, this is all the same stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, they're all hints, like you said. It's all just like pointing you in the direction. And I find it interesting that that's all really you can do. You can't. There's no words that can really, um, or concepts or symbols that can really. You can you can't like see something and be like oh yes. It has to be like experiential, like you said. It has to be something that you feel, individually, subjectively in your heart or your soul, whatever you want to say. Uh, but it's something that we all come to on our own accord. So my question to you is, what? how did you come to this? Is it through meditation? Like, do you have any certain practice where you realize like, oh, shit, this is a game? <laughs> um, I, I was probably one of the world's worst meditators mm-hmm. um, when I started 30 years ago. I was, I was the type of person who very analytically approached meditation where I would sit down and I would breathe and I would time myself and I would say, can I meditate better today than I meditated yesterday? Mm-hmm. I had the whole trip absolutely, you know, as backwards as you can get it. And so for me, the epiphany sort of came with kind of the darkest point of my anxiety. I, I was, you know, suffering from anxiety and, I, and it kept getting worse the more I tried to not be anxious. And I had realized that my anxiety is actually me not wanting to be anxious. Hmm. Like it clicked. Hmm. Like my actual anxiety is me not wanting to be anxious. And I said, you know, screw it, let it happen. I had this moment of just absolute acceptance, like whatever, like if you're going to kill me, just kill me now, you Mm -hmm. know, and all of a sudden my anxiety went away 
and it's just like this thing clicked. I was like, okay, that's weird. Mm. <laughs> Why is it that when I bought something, it made it more intense? And the moment I had acceptance, it just disappeared. Yeah. And that sort of sent me on this trip where I realized that's the way the thinking mind works. That's why you can't solve a thinking problem by more thinking. Mm-hmm. Because every time we think, like, it's, you know, the thinking mind tries to control and, 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 and move the world in one way or another. And every time we try to do that, it seems like it backfires. And that's why, you know, when you look at, um, uh, you know, we think of philosophies, okay, well, what should, you know, what, what should we do? Uh, you know, you can think about this politically and people are, you know, there's always some thinking mind that comes along and says, I know what to do. And, and I, you know, think about back in the seventies and people would say, well, every time, you know, let's, let's, let's declare war, you know, let's declare war on cancer. Let's declare war on drugs. Think about how the war on drugs went. I mean, it just was, you know, kind of laughable when you think about how it absolutely backfired. And, fired yeah, a failure. <laughs> and so, you know, every time the thinking mind sets out on a mission, I must do this, this, it, it just backfires. Like I was setting out on this mission. I must not be anxious. Mm. And the more I set out on that mission, the more it backfired. The yeah. more I kind of just chilled and said, whatever happens, happens. The more everything just kind of fell into place. Yep. That's what Krishnamurti said. I I think you said that in your book. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it was, uh, What's the, what was his secret is that he doesn't care what happens. And yeah. I like the way of power I, in that. Yeah, he said, I don't mind what happens. And I, I don't know if he was playing with that in the sense that like the thinking mind, like think about mind. Oh, like, okay. Mm-hmm. I don't mind what happens. That's good. Which, which is a way to think of, I don't think too much. Mm. And uh, and that's a really wonderful clue. You know? I mean, Seems like a war between our right and left brain. And for me, that's the way I, um, I think that's a really nice, simple way to conceptualize it. And from the neuropsych perspective, sometimes people, you know, take that a little bit too, um, maybe seriously. And, 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 and they'll say, well, there's other parts of the brain and we can't really, and I'm like, yeah, I know that. I mean, I know the brain, you know, it's very complex and there's a lot of ways you can play around and organize the brain. Uh, for me, though, the left and right brain is just a very, it's a, it's an easy way to communicate with people. It's an easy way um, to get the message across. And, it, and then there is an actual decent amount of research and an actual research evidence to back it up. And so it's not just, you know, pulling out any metaphor. It's not purely metaphorical. I think that there's, um, it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a path that I think pays off for people. And, and, you, and you could start to notice this kind of left brain awareness and this right brain awareness. And so, um, like we said before, like earlier, we were talking about consciousness versus the thinking mind. And to me, in fact, one of the oldest uh, ideas about the left and right brain, I mean, this is like 2000 years old, was that the right brain processes reality and the left brain processes our thoughts about reality. Mm. Me, I'm like, man, you know, that just nailed it. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really nice way to conceptualize how the two sides of the brain work. Is our left brain processing our thoughts or are they generating our thoughts? I would say both, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, what you just asked is a really interesting question, because if you sit and just count to 10 in your head and say, okay, that's pretty easy. Then ask yourself, was I the one listening or was I the one counting? Oh, that's good. (laughs) I don't know. 
<laughs> it gets it can be kind of an interesting question because you start getting into it and you're like you know um because we talk so much to ourselves and you know that voice in the head is is, is one of the things that remains absolutely constant through all of spirituality uh the eastern philosophies have picked up on this a long time ago Krishna Murray, I mean, they all knew that this voice in the head isn't who they are mm. and i think that's one of the things that Eckhart Tolle picked up on and that's why he was able to connect with such a wide audience because he was like, look, we all talk to ourselves. We have this voice in the head. And the research suggests pretty strongly that that voice in the head is really being generated by a real small spot called Broca's area in the left side of our brain. And uh, Really? So we have a particular region in our brain just for our voice? And the weird thing is, is that not only is it connected to the voice in our head, well, we don't know any of this for absolute certain, but... If you talk to yourself and you're in, say, an fMRI chamber, that Broca's area lights up. And it happens to light up also when you're talking. So right now, as I'm talking to you, this little Broca's area in my left brain is really able to control all the muscles that control speech. But hmm. the weird thing is that's the same spot of the brain that act activates with our inner speech. So what do you mean by that? It controls it and then activates it? Yeah, can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. So not only does it control it, activate it, not only is it kind of, if we think neurologically right now, it's sort of that neurological center of the inner voice. But we know that when Broca's area shuts down, so does our inner voice. And so to me, that's really interesting evidence because we know people who have strokes in the left side of their brain, well, they stop talking. But the interesting thing is if it's a very severe stroke, not only do they stop talking, but their inner voice goes quiet. And some mm. of these patients, when, they're re, when, they're, when they recover and their Broca's area comes back online, they can describe it in, in, in a way that is, is a very interesting, almost spiritual kind of experience. The way they yeah. describe it is, you know, my inner voice went silent. I wasn't thinking anymore. Wow, that's so interesting. I wonder what that even feels like. Are they like, are they more in the moment? in a way like are they that's i don't know i just have to dive into that more that's so interesting to me i haven't heard of that uh, ever that's great well what's the, what's the brain region called again broca's area broca's area okay. yeah Paul broca was a uh a, a doctor about 100 years ago and he was um uh analyzing a patient and the patient came in and he couldn't really speak and after he had died broca dissected his brain and he had a huge lesion in this area so broca very you know uh thought he'd name it after himself. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up becoming known as Broca's area. Oh. Do you think that uh, in the future, we're going to, you know, things such as like Neuralink hook up to our brain and be able to um, almost touch upon these areas and control our facet of being, like our brain, a lot more than we can now? Like we do it through meditation, but it takes discipline and it takes time and it takes time, it takes effort. Do you think in the future at will, we're going to be able to like uh, have more control over our brain essentially and just uh, become different beings? Well, my take is that artificial intelligence is vastly extending what we think of as the thinking mind. And so computers can think and, and, and what we, and, and this all makes sense because we live in a world dominated by the thinking mind. I mean, we've created, you know, 
realities that are a reflection of the thinking mind. And in some ways, the phone, the cell phones that people carry around, they're great kind of extensions of the thinking mind. So I think artificial intelligence is going to do an amazing talent of extending the thinking mind. What I do not think it will ever achieve is uh, the process underneath it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's ever going to achieve the consciousness that's actually behind the thinking mind. Um, but there was a something I wanted to mention before that, that because you were saying, like, how do we stop thinking in a sense? And this is something I actually call the refrigerator light problem. Uh, one hypothesis, and I'm just throwing it out just for fun, a thought experiment. Okay. Because we are, at least on the surface, it seems like we're plagued by thinking. You know, so many people just, you know, oh, you know, so many worries. I mean, think about things like the virus. And, you know, there is the virus, and, and that's a problem. But so many of us think so much about it that, you know, for some people, thinking about it is far worse than the actual virus is because, you know, people, a lot of people will never get it. And yet they have lived in fear for so long about it. And that's the problem with the thinking mind. We have a real difficult time with it. So what I call the refrigerator light problem, you know, refrigerator light, you know, it's only on when the door is open. So you might think that it's on all the time. But a speculative idea about thinking is what if we actually don't think all the time? What if we only think we're thinking all the time? Because when we think, the thinking mind turns on and just like, you know, it just assumes it has been on all the time. Mm. I mean, th- when you consider it and you look over the course of a day, uh, you know, what about a musician who gets lost in music? Yeah. And, you know, and people who go out and they go for a nature walk. And, and see, that's the, that's the thing about the thinking mind. It, it only knows it's thinking when it's thinking. Mm. When it's out, I mean, it's the same thing, like a lot of people will say, you know, so you go to sleep at night and you and you fall asleep and it just feels like you wake up in the morning and it yeah. feels like nothing happened. Well, so many people, I'd say the vast majority of neuroscientists are like, well, that's because you're unconscious. Consciousness isn't present during deep sleep. And I'm like, maybe not. Maybe it's the thinking mind that is off. Yes. And then, consciousness is still on and consciousness and then it's interesting when you get into some of the hindu philosophers they actually will come right out and say it, that when you're asleep even deep sleep consciousness is still there mm. but from the thinking mind's perspective it, it has this biased framework where it's just like hey you know it's like that person who shows up to a party like hours late and they think the party never started until they got there (laughs) (laughs) thinking mind is like hey if i'm not there it's not happening yeah and so you know consciousness might might be with us it's kind of i call it clear consciousness i mean there's a lot of words for it i I don't want to come up with another phrase but um you know it's it's ever present it's always there it's always in the background and and the thinking mind just kind of comes along and just kind of clouds it with, you know, it's like clouds on a sunny day, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so AI and all the stuff we're doing, I mean, they're projections of the thinking mind, you know? And I, maybe I can get my thinking self. I mean, maybe there's some way to transfer my memories. Um, you know, if, if, you, if we're able to get the thinking mind and the problem-solving mind, and we're able to get that into a computer, I'm pretty convinced at one point the computer would start thinking it has a self in it. 
Mm, that's interesting, yeah. And so we may have thinking computers and we may have thinking computers that are even convinced that they have a self. <laughs> that self isn't going to be any more real than the self that we think is real. Mm. Have you ever heard of a philosopher AI? No. It's a, I don't even know if you want to call it a program, but it's an algorithm or I don't even know what it's titled as, but it's, it's using the, the language GPT-3, which is it, um, its database is pretty much the entire internet. I don't, I, I'm not going to act like I know how it works, but you could ask it questions like I'm asking you and have a conversation with it. I actually have a video called A Conversation with Philosopher AI. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's just like, you could ask this thing anything and it'll give you this like I ask it like these uh like existential questions and it, it gives you an answer that it seems like a human came up with it and it seems like it, it has some kind of identity like at times it feels like I'm speaking to somebody on the other side of the screen and they're giving me this this you know this long thoughtful answer that uh turns out it actually isn't a person at all it's just the I guess an algorithm a program or just it's just like it's just a pattern recognition, essentially. And it's so profound. And it seems like it has this kind of self. It, it, it convinced me that it has this self, but it's it's not. It's just literally just patterns on a screen. So maybe that's just what we are. We're just like philosopher AI times 10, yeah. you know? We're just like, we're just pattern recognition machines. In yeah, a way. Well, think about it for a second. Like if you had it, when we are by far the most advanced pattern recognition machines on the planet. And we still have two computers. That's why when you when you're online, they'll still have some kind of funky, you know, uh, um, script. You know, it's really messed up. And only a human is sophisticated enough that we can say, okay, that's the letter L. And and sometimes even we mess it up. Yeah. But we are like these amazing pattern recognition machines. The machines are catching up and they're pretty close. Yeah. If you had this incredible pattern recognition machine that's looking out and it sees the stars and it can't even look at the stars, you know, it looks out and sees the stars and it's like, oh no, that's a belt and that's this hundred, you know, it, it imposes its own images on everything that's there. Yeah. Well, what happens one day when this turns inward? It's going to come to the conclusion that there must be a me in there. <laughs> Same thing we do. Mm. And so, the real cool thing about AI is it was cool watching you have that experience because I've had that experience where you're dealing with an AI program and you're like, man, there's a self. Or if you remember the movie um, Her, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Samantha, you just became real convinced, like there's something, you know, in there, you know, there, there's a self. And of course there isn't. But that could be used as a really interesting tool to, so we can go, wow, there's no self in those computers. And then it might click like, Wow, I wonder if I'm doing that same thing. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It is great. You can use computers for a metaphor for us uh, in our brains. I mean, it's because, you know, computers came from our thinking brains. So, you know, that, that's how it kind of has to be. But there's a lot of, um, you know, symbolism you can put on us and use computer metaphors for it and just kind of see how we are just like this program in a way. Kind of just... Awesome. A lot of ways you know the mm. wonderful thing about programs is they're really dichotomous i mean computers when it comes down to it you know Leibniz and i mean i mean they were like went all the way back to like the I Ching, and they realized that you know if you have this dichotomous system that just you know on or off you can combine those in you know so many interesting ways to come up with all this you know interesting complex worlds Mm -hmm. and that's what computers are. They're just nothing but on and offs. And yet, you know, I'm looking at the screen and 
you know, it's a really interesting, complex world out there, but it's really just a bunch of, bunch of on and offs. And of course, that's exactly what the brain, the neuron does nothing more than fire or not fire. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, these interesting, complex realities can come out of these simple building blocks of on and off. Yeah. Do you, it seems to me, from what you described, that the, the left brain seems to be archaic and obsolete, and the right brain seems to be more so, I don't know if it's newer or just like a different take on experience or consciousness. And it seems like they're almost opposites in a way, like yin and yang. You know, one holds the other back, but you have to, you can't just shut off the left brain. You can't just shut off thinking. You have to learn how to work with your thoughts and, you know, uh, decipher your thoughts with your right brain, right? Yeah, I mean, we're at a time and, you know, sometimes I think someone could read my book and they'll be like, wow, he, he just sounds so like anti-left brain. He just wants to shut the thing down. And that's really not the message because, you know, look at we're talking right now. And a lot of what we're able to do right now is because of our left brain. Mm. And, and we're just at a time we can't go back. You know, um, it doesn't make any sense to uh, do away with the left brain or make the left brain, you know, the you know demonize it or make it like sin or you know or, or in any way kind of judge it because if we do well the only thing judging that is the left brain itself mm-hmm. yeah so um i think the path that you know to really get at what it means to be human right now is going to be integrating that left brain in a more subordinate way i mean you know not letting it kind of rule us but making it into a really useful tool and learning to use it when it's when it's useful, you know, if you go around yeah. trying to hit everything, it's not going to work, you know, but it really works wonderfully when, you know, the task is right. Yes. And so uh, instead of letting the left brain dominate our lives, which I think is happening right now, um, we can bring it, you know, a little bit more balance. And, you know, that's the whole thing of yin and yang is it's, it's a wonderful kind of harmonious balance, that kind of middle path. And, um, and that's, uh, and, and we can do that. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the exercises in the book, uh, a lot of the exercises I do, I've been working on with this next book are, are simple things that you can bring into your life that just, you know, help us appreciate what the right brain is doing all the time. Mm-hmm. Help us appreciate that kind of process of consciousness that underlies everything. Mm. Can you go over some of those exercises? Um, yeah, sure. I, I think... And, um, you know, it's a dynamic thing. I think it's going to change for people. And I know that it changes for me all the time. For some times, it's, it's music that works for me. Oh, yeah. I think music is one of the ways that you can get out of your thinking mind. And, um, and the, to me, the coolest thing about music, and, and this isn't the kind of thing that is real obvious to people. I did a um, project with my class and I said, what? And, and I didn't even give them instructions. I, you know, and that irritates students a lot. Mm-hmm. I just said, write on what music means to me. And I got these amazing responses that uh, were intense. And, you know, I mean, seriously, like, you know, meaning of life kind of things. And it, this kind of sneaky thing about music is that we do it. We do it for no reason, unless you're a professional musician. But most of us, you know, amateurs, we just do it for no reason. And it's never really obvious to us. It, in other words, it doesn't confront the thinking mind in a way that makes the thinking mind defensive. And that's mm-hmm. a way to get around it. And so the, there's so many things about music. One, it, from a neurological standpoint, it's interesting because 
the way the brain is uh, arranged is it has a bunch of modules. And so you have language and you have vision and hearing and they're all specialized modules. So when you do a task, only that part of the brain really lights up. I mean, the whole brain's working all the time, but one area will light up in particular. But when you listen to music, it all lights up. Mm. Like this thing where the whole brain is kind of uh, doing it. But the interesting thing about music is um, the thinking mind, one of the more obvious limitations is it processes one thing at a time. And that's why we call it like a train of thought, because it's like one car after another. And it's very difficult to think two thoughts at once. If I say, you know, hey, you ever try to like listen to two people talk at once? It's like, you know, mm. shift back and forth. Yeah. And so, but music gets around this. You know, even if you're listening to a small group, like, you know, like the Who or something, you know, small little three-piece group or something, but um, you're, you're listening, you're, you you got to, it's not one thing at a time. You're listening to it all at once. And if you get to like an orchestra or a symphony, it's like, you're listening to, like, it, it, it spreads consciousness far more vast than in any other time in our, our ordinary waking day. Yeah. And so that's one of the wonderful things about it is it just, it help, it helps us become more in tune with that process mm. and just thinking. So one, I mean, that's a simple thing. And a lot yeah. of people are already doing it. But then sometimes people go in and they'll listen to music with a purpose, you know, and that's just like reading poetry for a purpose or, you know, any kind of art that has a purpose. Yeah. It's, it does, you know, you're not doing it for a purpose, you know. Mm. The left brain has is so goal-oriented and, and that's because the left brain is so, you know, it's all in time. And time has a you know past and then it has a future where I can improve myself and become better. And when you get out of time and you just kind of dig music for a little bit, you know, you do get out of time. I don't know if it's ever happened, you know, you ever sit down and you know, you start playing an instrument or just listen to music and then you know an hour goes by and you don't even know it. Yeah. Because you've kind of unplugged the clock. You know? mm. Yeah, because the thing about music, this isn't my quote. I'm pretty sure actually Alan Watts said this somebody said it is yeah. you it's you don't look forward to the end of the song it's the yeah. only thing where we're not well you could say movies too but it's not something where we're like oh i can't wait till it ends we just kind of get lost in that process of the song it's not something where i'm like oh three more minutes and the song's done it's like i'm enjoying everything that this is this art form in this current moment in this process and like you said there's no when you're in that mindset which is like beyond conception, beyond time, it does take you closer to the present moment. It takes you closer to just being in this process. And music itself is a process. Like it is entire intricate process of patterns and just, it's it's magic essentially. <laughs> it really is. And it it's, we just, if you get, the more you get lost in that process, yes, it is. It kind of like, I can see how it touches upon that right brain, non- time fashion thinking and uh yeah that's great do you know if alan watts said that quote because i think he did yeah I, think he did. I mean one of his lectures and i and i he also said that you know when it comes to music we play music but we go to work you know mm. and it's kind of interesting too that we use that phrase like where do you work i mean wouldn't it be mm. weird if we said well where do you play <laughs> mm. you know? i mean that'd be kind of a cool life it's like well where do you play it's like oh i play this you know oh you know but we don't we say where do you work and work has this kind of you know, kind of dreadful sound to it, you know, and play yeah. on it doesn't. And so I think music sort of, uh, like you said, it, it alleviates the, ten, it, the, the the problems of the future because in music, there is no future. It's just all happening. You know, you're appreciating every moment for what it is. You're not rushing it. You know, so many people 
when they get to work, they want, uh, oh, is it Friday yet? You know, mm -hmm. is, it, is it eight o'clock yet? And um, that's just a tough way. To, it's a tough way to live. And the thing is, it all goes by so fast anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, hmm. uh, you know, and there's other simple exercises. I, I, I really think that the left brain is so in time and it's so burdensome carrying the past and the future with it that the right brain has this kind of immediacy to it. And you can kind of wake that up. So I'll tell, uh, I used to do this with my kids. I'd be like, you know, my daughter would say something like, what time is it, dad? And I'd say, it's now. Hmm. And she'd be like, what do you mean? No, it's still now. It's still, it's always, and I'd do that till she started getting irritated, irritated with me. <laughs> and she'd be like, but then you'd see, like there would be a kind of a thing that would kind of, yeah, it is now. And that, that is an interesting feeling. It's just like music has a feel to it. When you start living in the now, it has a certain feel to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's all it is. And that's really all you can say. It is like this certain feeling. And then once you put some kind of concept on what the now is, and it's like, all right, well, then you're not in the now. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, yeah, you bring, and that's fine. You know, there are a lot of times when you might want to, um, you know, uh, consider some something in the future, you know, pull yourself out of the now, but there's no balance. You know, I, I know so many of my students, they're so caught up in what am I going to do when I graduate? You know, I mean, even my kids, you know, my son's not even 13 yet. And he's kind of projecting off into like, where, where am I going to go to college? And these are all useful to some degree. But, you know, if we miss out on the now, then we miss out on the only thing that's actually real. Mm. That's, that's that. But then you could say, oh, man, I don't know. That sounds like a tragedy. But it comes back to that game. Mm -hmm. That's the game. You know, we're playing a fantastic game of being everything we're not. You know, we really are this ever pro processing moment of consciousness that's playing this game of being everything it's not by getting caught up in our day-to-day -day problems, you know, getting caught up in work. And I had one in my YouTube channel, someone commented on this movie called um, Employee of the Month. And I thought, okay, it's, so I checked it out. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's kind of a funny movie, but there's a lot of movies about work and how work creates these worlds. You know, where like the TPS reports are terribly important and oh, you didn't hand this in. And, and you know, that's the game, you know, yeah. these like weird little worlds where everything gets, you know, we're all stressed out about them. Mm -hmm. And then you step outside that world. And so that's why it's funny to watch from a perspective of, you know, as a movie, because you're outside of that world looking in and everyone in that world is stressed out and freaked that, you know, Oh, this is going to be late. Oh, the boss doesn't just walked in. Let's all be like serious, you know. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds funny, you know. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what I think we're doing, you know, in life. We take this whole trip really seriously, but there is consciousness, you know, and it's and it's playing the game, and it's kind of outside of all this, watching the show and thinking the whole thing is kind of hilarious. <laughs> and that, like you said, you win the game once you realize it's a game, and it doesn't mean you stop playing it. But once you realize it, then you can really play it for what it's worth. You can, you know, you because what is a game, right? It has rules. It has certain guidelines to live by. Um, I don't know. How would you? Okay, well, this is a good question. How would you classify what a game is? I I can't remember which philosopher it is. It's one of the classic philosophers. And he actually used the word, the frame, the uh, phrase game as one that's almost impossible to actually define. Like we yeah. all know what it is, but it, when it comes down, it's like time. We all know what time is until someone asks us to define it. And it turns out 
you know, there's a whole lot of things like this, like gravity. No one has any clue what gravity is, but yet, you know, we assume it's there. <laughs> so the thinking mind has a lot of limitations. The one thing it has a real limitation with is articulating precisely things that it fears. <laughs> <laughs> it just, you know, so, you know, um, yeah, the, the, the game is something, the reason I have such a hard time describing exactly what a game is, is because I think it's outside of what the thinking mind can really comprehend. Mm. That's why I was saying before, it's better to feel the game. You know, have, yeah. a, have a gist for it, kind of extend consciousness out a little bit more than thinking about it. Then that's when the game comes, you know, that's when you get, oh, I know, we all know exactly what the game is. We just can't put it exactly in the words. Yes. Yeah. And I think the greatest thing of realizing this game, I say it's a game. I say life is somewhere between a game, a movie, and a show. There's somewhere, you know, it's, there's, it's all it's, it's all just different terms on the same concept. <laughs> but I think the biggest thing that you get, I don't know if that's the right terminology that you get from it, is, is kind of mitigating or negating the fear of death greatly. Because once you realize there is no self to die, then nobody dies, right? And that's the biggest thing that I've got from it. I'm not going to say I'm not going to jump out of the way if a truck's coming straight at me. But it's more of the idea of me not existing, right? Everybody has that fear of like, oh, no, I might not exist. But if you already come to the conclusion that you don't exist right now, and that you are simply just a, a process unfolding upon itself, then there is no fear of that. And that is true liberation, right? There is no like, what greater gift can you ask to be bestowed upon yourself than um, fear, not fearing your own demise? It's such a beautiful concept, isn't it? And uh, in many ways, we die all the time. We just don't realize it. Like when you get lost in music, you, there is no self there. You're you're gone. Mm. You're offline. You know when you mm. walk in nature and you stop thinking for a little bit. Um, you know, in fact, when I was saying that maybe perhaps we don't think as much as we think we think. Mm. In the same way, maybe we're not around as much as we think we're around. Mm. You know? And yeah, we start. That's an interesting uh, idea that you have. That. So yeah, that's like how do we? So you you think that we're not always thinking like there's times where we're just simply we're you you would say that we're actually there's times that we're actually in the moment per se then we would realize but the thinking mind trivializes it we have phrases we say oh i was out of it for a while and yeah from the thinking mind's perspective the thinking mind was out of it it had stepped out of the way a little bit Mm. And part of what I like to do, so, you know, what are these exercises? Part of what I like to do is help people realize, you know, have that kind of insight that, you know, I am kind of out of my own way more than I may think that I am. And it's kind of another way of putting it. Um, there's an old 80s movie. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with 80s movies <laughs> and stuff. And and this guy was going to go off and he was going to be married and, and, he, and he just looked kind of dreadful, you know, and, he's, and he looked at his best man. And he's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever be happy being married. And, and the best man had this great response. He goes, you'll always be happy. You just won't know it. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and so yeah. in that same way, I think we're far more 
at ease and we're, we're, we're enjoying the game far more than the thinking mind thinks it is. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we are offline more than we think we are, but then the thinking mind comes back on and all it remembers is all the, the negative. It just it remembers the dread and it, and, it, and it trivializes that moment through nature. You know, it trivializes those blissful moments of peace. And it has to, the thinking mind has kind of an inferiority complex. <laughs> no, it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, it's it's always, you know, wants to be in charge and it wants to kind of glorify thinking. You remember Descartes, you know, I think, therefore, he literally based his whole existence on the fact that he had thoughts, you know, and so you come along and what I do is sort of poke that a little bit, you know, and, um, and, uh, and the thinking mind sometimes fights back, but, uh, I think that uh, far more we are, we're far more at peace, we're far more happy than we think we are. <laughs> yes, I think that's our, it's so funny, we keep saying, I think uh, <laughs> it's, I, that's our true nature is peace. And it's just something that you have to realize and find in a way. It's always there. It's, it really is too. And it sounds corny and cliche, but it, it is our true nature as a conscious being beyond uh, beyond all of the trivialities of of the you know and the drama of life is just this peaceful compassionate being underneath all of this and underneath the ego and the, all the noise and the bullshit of life is this compassionate selfless being that is uh essentially made of love and i know that sounds corny and very hippie-ish but it kind of is the truth and, and you don't really realize that until you do the work and you kind of do these exercises that you're talking about and you know maybe contemplate or meditate a little bit and find out what your true nature is and it is we're just like this waveform of love that is veiled in a facade of fear thanks to our years of programming and evolution survival and yada 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 that's a great way to put it i agree and i agree that also sounds kind of cliche the people you know if if you if you haven't had the experience, if you haven't haven't connected with it, but when you get to that process, it is a deep sense of absolute love, kindness, you know, unending empathy, and 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 there is no other, you know. And so yeah. some people think, oh, you know, the thinking mind thinks that well, oh, you know, the world couldn't go on without me. It would it would it would fall into chaos, and, and you know, and that's not at all what would happen. Mm -hmm. But when you look at these people who have had the profound experience of going beyond the thinking mind that they're you know so kind and of course they're kind because they realize if i did i'd only be hurting myself you know there's yeah. no other out there exactly and their consciousness sort of you know goes far outside their own ego and so their awareness isn't just about you know what i need to do you know what does this meat suit need to do so i'm successful in terms of thinking mind their consciousness is more interconnected with the whole system. Yep. And so mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a real interesting shift in what we what we think of as leadership. I think mm -hmm. in leadership we've been led by the thinking mind and, and we're impressed by thinking minds. And the thinking mind, we well, who are we going to have to lead us? Well, let's have the best thinking mind out there. And you know, where has that really gotten us? <laughs> you know? So I have this suspicion that, you know, in terms of like the way, kind of the wave and where things are going. And uh, maybe, maybe I could be wrong, but um, 
I think uh, we're going to start downplaying significantly on a global level the thinking mind, and we're going to start reaching out a little bit more into this underlying conscious process that is far more interconnected with everything. Yeah. So decisions, and when we say, well, you know, let's do this, or you know, it's going to be a decision that's going to come from a much bigger perspective than the limitations of someone's left brain. Mm. Yes, the conscious perspective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I always think of that too. It's just, it's a, it's a totally different world. If that, if that is the paradigm that we're moving toward, it's a totally different world that we are going to find ourselves in. I don't think it's going to be like a one day we're in this way of thinking, and then the next day we're in this whole different paradigm. I think it is the gradual process that we're kind of seeing unfold right now. And it's interesting because it's it really just comes down to all of us doing the work individually. And then from there, that's how we change the world. It's not going to change necessarily from voting in new leaders uh, or, you know, it doesn't come from the outside. There's it, it, it another cliche, change, change comes from the inside. And then from there, the outside changes. And I think that is where we are heading, ideally, hopefully. Uh, we're just going through a little rough patch i guess you could say right now but that's how humans grow we grow through struggle and, and every uh, little rough patch every little you know uh failure again that's just you know the game wouldn't be really exciting if we couldn't fail yeah <laughs> that's true that is true yeah because if we always knew from the get-go that we were always hmm, yeah it's almost like we we had to forget who we were mm -hmm. in in order to remember who we were i think that's kind of what the the point, if there is a point of living, of being a human being, is remembering who we are, because nobody knows what we are or where we came from, like really don't like, which, and that's the greatest mystery of life is, I think, and that's the whole gist of life is us collectively figuring out what the hell is going on, because nobody knows what's going on either. We don't know who we are. We're just here surviving. We eat, we sleep, we poop, we fornicate. We just, we're, we're just caught in this process. We don't know why. We don't know who did it, where we came from. But I think that's what's going on here is we're slowly figuring out that some may say we are God or we are the process. We're slowly figuring out we're a part of this thing. And then, yes, from there, we move into a society where we know that we are this process and who knows where the world's going to be. But yes, this is the first step of realizing our true nature is uh, just the stuff we've been talking about before, just going in, diving into yourself and figuring out there is no self. And then uh, we act from that. It's uh, It seems like it's like we've had amnesia for years and we just forgot that we are this process. And why do you think we forgot? Is that just like, like, what is the, I don't want to say point, but like, where did that come from? Like our amnesia? Cause do you think that we were more in touch with this back in like the, we'll say like the, the, the hunter gatherer times, do you think we were more in touch when we were in these smaller communities and you know, uh, more in touch with nature do you think we were kind of on more of that paradigm of the collective rather than the egoistic you know individual greed selfishness fear kind of paradigm that we're running on now or is there like something that we're kind of regaining as we come to find our true nature yeah absolutely i think if you go back i mean homo sapiens we've been on the planet for about two hundred thousand years i think if you went back two hundred thousand years ago 
we would, our consciousness was far more in tune with that process, but we had to forget. So why do we have this amnesia? And in the book I mentioned, well, what if you owned a casino? You know, and it'd be really boring to play in your own casino. You know, because if I win, I kind of lose. And if I lose, as the owner, I would win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if I could really have fun in a casino that I actually owned, I'd have to forget I owned it. Yeah. I'd have to have amnesia. Yeah. You know, go in and, and just forget all the time that I was, you know, the owner. And if I did, then I could have a lot of fun. And then there's the adventure. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I'll lose. Mm. And so you know, we had to have amnesia so we could go on what I think Jung would have called the hero's journey. You know, and we'll, we're doing this and, and, you're, and maybe we will come back. And if we come back, maybe we'll say, oh, you know, the movie, that, it was fun. You know, maybe let's start it over again. Mm -hmm. Let's forget all, let's forget who we truly are. Let's forget the whole thing again and watch, you know, hey, you know, Homo sapiens 2.0. Yeah. And we'll back and we'll do the whole thing over again. And let's play the game again. Yeah. That's what we've been doing, right? That's been the eternity. You know, mm -hmm. we've been doing it so many times. And because we've purposely given ourselves amnesia, we don't remember it. Mm -hmm. So some would say that's where we're stuck in the cycle of samsara, right? That's the cycles. We just keep coming back and coming back. But the Buddha taught that you can escape that cycle of the game and essentially reach nirvana. And, and I don't know what that is. You can't even talk about nirvana. But do you think that is kind of... Uh, human's destiny in a way so that we stop playing the game and escape our suffering and we all reach a certain kind of buddhahood collectively it absolutely could be and wouldn't it be interesting if that happened and then we just said well you know this is oh, this is cool but it was also kind of fun playing the game and yeah then, you know i mean it's you know from our perspective we we think well why wouldn't you want absolute peace and i actually think alan watts talked about it one time when he's like are you sure you want absolute enlightenment? Just sitting there, you know, on your, uh, you know, uh, in lotus position or something, and you're just going to sit there in absolute peace and tranquility. I, I said, are you absolutely sure that's really what you want? Because mm -hmm. when you play with that a little bit and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, right now, you know, with all my work problems and, you know, money problems and COVID, yeah, I, maybe I'll take that deal and I would love to have peace. But yeah, go, you know, a couple million years and, you know, and, and, and you might kind of think, hey, let's mix it up a little bit. Let's throw some humans in there, the thinking minds, and let them get into some trouble and, you know, you know, mess things up a little bit and, uh, you know, get into this cold, wild adventure thinking that they're individual human and individual cells inside these meat suits and let them have some adventures and, you know, think that death is real. Mm -hmm. really, you want to make a game you got to have death that has to be thought of as i mean if you take death out of the equation you know the game doesn't work anymore you've got to have yeah. this horrible thing called death that we all you know fear because then it makes the game you know wow you, you know it's not a game it's it's real <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. the best game those are the best games to play the ones that we don't think of as games at all yeah hmm yeah, I think this is another Alan Watts quote. A lot of Alan Watts quotes in this episode. <laughs> he said along the lines of, imagine that you were God and you could do anything that you want, any possibility, any fantasy, anything that you desire, anything that you can conceptualize, you can do. Just like a dream world. And 
you know, eventually you time would go on and you live and have all of these experiences and things and fantasies, but you'd reach a point where like, hmm, I'm kind of tired of this. I want something else. I want something new. Well, if that happened, which some may say it did, then you would be exactly in this position right now, living your life, listening to this podcast it, in your body yeah. right here, right now. If you were God, that's what would happen. And I paraphrase, you obviously said it a lot better than I did, but you, you kind of get the idea. It's, that, yeah. it's along that, those lines. And that's it's a it's a wonderful way to sort of cheat, you know, because because when you when you when you have that insight and, so, and when you know I remember listening to Alan and and so many Eastern philosophies say the same thing and, and when you sort of get a feeling for that like wow what if that's what if that's the case, what if I really am eternal blissful consciousness playing a game that I'm worried about going to work on Monday, and it's it's, it's a really interesting sensation to kind of play with that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, it is. And it, and it, you know, it reminds me of a um, Star Trek, one of the movies, The Next Generation, when they had this thing called the Nexus. And the Nexus was this kind of fantasy land where anything you want could happen. And I think it was Kirk, he was jumping over something. And, and he said, in real life, he had jumped over it and he had been terrified every time. But since this was a fantasy, he wasn't even afraid. And it was really boring. You know, it's sort of like, it, because in that fantasy land, there was no real death. And there, so it really it made the game kind of meaningless, and so he chose to left to leave this kind of fantasy world, and that's the thing about a dream. So maybe this is all a dream, but it would never work unless we didn't know it was a dream. Mm. We've got to mistake the dream for reality. <laughs> half, we have to think, and it's interesting too because when you get into a dream. Uh, and I think dreams are another breadcrumb we left ourselves because dreams are a strange world where the impossible seems to happen. You know, yeah. like mm -hmm. you have this dream, you're like, oh yeah, I was with my friend, but really they were a stranger. And we were in my old house, but really it was a stadium. You know, and you're like, yeah. what? And, <laughs> and, and the interesting thing is that what we're figuring out now is that, and, and this is one of the things science has been so helpful with, is that so many things of this reality seem dreamlike. You know, I mean, we're in told- what way? Well, I mean, you know, I'm sitting on a chair and, and matter and these meat suits all seem so real. They seem to have substance. Then the physicists come along and say, well, you know, the way quantum mechanics, the most successful theory in science, suggests that there's really 99.999% empty space. And there's really just these potentials of stuff we're not even really sure of, mm. or, you know, uh, that just have probabilities of showing up in certain places. Then that's what reality is. Mm. I forget his name, but he's like, you know, when you really get down to what we call the real it's nothing real at all <laughs> i mean so you know damn how much more of a dream world? i mean this you know that's a big hint maybe this stuff is all just a dream and the very substance of reality doesn't seem like it's what we think of as reality at all and i'm gonna wake up in a few hours and be like oh my god i just had a dream i was on this podcast <laughs> with this guy he wrote a book <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh it seems like our universe is something of paradox and uh, polarity. And our left brain just constantly tries to decipher the paradox and polarity, but the better we can just kind of sit with that, that paradox, which might be a right brain thing, um, I guess that's the truth, is being able to handle paradoxes because you can't outthink a paradox. Like it's just, you're just gonna get in another paradox. You're just gonna keep getting deeper and deeper. 
uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah, it's just like the basis of this, um, of this reality, it seems, of this game, of this dream, when getting to the nitty gritty of it is just, it's just, we're never really going to be able to figure it out. There is no figuring this thing out because the only thing to figure out is that we're, we can never figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's nicely put, exactly. And um, again, since we're kind of going down the Alan Watts rabbit hole, I'll throw in one more. I mean, that's what Ben Koans are all about. You know, the whole Zen trip is to put so much paradox to the thinking mind that we stop thinking. Mm. And Alan told a story about how, uh, you know, the student would go to the teacher and the teacher would throw out a koan and then the student had to answer. And uh, the student was trying to be really clever. And so he would, he got this like really big toad and put it underneath his kimono and the teacher said well who are you and he'd pull he pulled out the toad like this is going to be kind of really in, a cool into, interesting answer and the teacher just said too intellectual you know and so it's 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 the way you put it is very interesting like we're the, we're in a situation where we think we have a thinking problem and what we're going to have to realize is there's no way we can think our way out of this problem and when we realize we can't think our way out of the problem, then in a weird way, the problem is actually solved. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. That's very, to be able to have these conversations, man, it's just like, a, it's almost like a skill. It's like to know, I don't know, there's just something that just, it's like another layer of just consciousness of being okay with not knowing being okay with not being okay if that makes sense it's just like yeah. it's just like oh yeah it's it's a mystery and that's good that's i'm glad that life's a mystery and i enjoy these conversations and then you know uh we kind of get into this one mode and then you know whenever we finish i'll go i've got to go to, i've got to go to the store and <laughs> returning some things and you know and then you just the whole you know you get back right into this normal mode of reality Mm. You know? and that's okay i think it really is it's you know but it's a, a lot of fun to kind of come out of it you know and and, and talk about it and and it's it, it's a fascinating thing to use the thinking mind which we're both doing right now in a really interesting way that is you know uh we're, we're kind of talking about it too you know we're kind of talking behind the thinking mind's back in a way <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah hmm yeah that's what it is it's just it's it's i feel like if we always dwelled in that area which some people do some may say that's an enlightened being quote unquote uh it seems like a totally different reality i don't know i is that the goal you think to be able to constantly be in the moment per se like to be constantly in the state of presence or do you think we're meant to kind of transition back and forth and just knowing I, I have the saying where like once you open the door you always know what's on the other side of the door even if you close it you always know that there's something else in the other room that is just sticks in the back of your head so what we're talking about this realization of the game the movie the show is it's not always present in my mind like I don't like you said when I go to the store or I'm in traffic or you know something the drama of life happens I get caught, you know, I get lost in the sauce. I get kind of lost in whatever is going on in that moment. But I know there's something in me that can, there's nothing really that can convince me otherwise that in the back of my mind, there's something in me that says, well, 
you know what, Gary? It's okay. Don't take it so seriously. It's just the process. Ride the wave and you're going to be good. And I think that is kind of like a, that's, that is, there's power in that. Oh, absolutely. I think that's really, at least in my view, that to me is the goal. We watched, um, my wife wanted to watch that movie called Frozen. It was really this horrific movie of these people who were trapped on the ski lift and, and they fr like freeze to death. It, and, and you're thinking, well, that's really horrible. But as long as you know, it's a movie. Like if I was actually there and part of it and, it and I thought it was all real, it would have been terrifying. And I, you know, who would ever, you know, volunteer or even pay some amount of money to do this? But that you know that it's a movie, you know, you know that it's not the ultimate uh, reality mm. and that makes it what we would call entertainment. Mm. And so, like you said, you know, you, you open the door, you know that that's there. And that is sort of that lifeline to actual reality. Yeah, uh, you know, and and that to me, I wouldn't call it. I don't know if I call it a goal, but when it's there, it's extreme. It's a really comforting kind of thing. Mm. It's that kind of like, hey, you know, it's okay. You know. Yes, exactly. It's okay. Yeah, that's that's the truth. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I don't even know where to go from here. <laughs> it's all. It's gonna be okay, guys. Don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> don't take it so seriously. It's all I mean, a game. And if, if you take it terribly seriously, remember, you're actually playing the game in an even cooler version than we are. <laughs> you're so lost. Like you're uh, so locked into the game, you're actually in some ways playing it better. Yeah, yeah. And that, I thought of that before too. I'm like, this person, which is kind of funny because it's judgmental in a way, but I'm like, wow, this person is just so lost. They're actually found, if that makes sense. They're, they're so in this. And that's the whole basis behind... Uh, like Hinduism, I heard a saying before, it was like, if, um, how's it go? Um, a, a Hindu would look at somebody who has no kind of self-realization and just kind of playing their role as the, the shopkeeper or the barber or whatever. And they have no meditation practice, nothing, not, they have no ounce of opening that door and knowing what's on the other side. They're like you said, they are actually, that's, that's almost a form of enlightenment in a way <laughs> they're, they're that is their place in this world and they are playing that character so well they have no clue that they are this character in this process and you can look at like you know in the u.s right now people are real and all across the globe people are really i mean there's this classic thing where people feel so divided and they you know and they feel that there's the left and the right and and, and they're so at odds with each other and if you get caught up in that, it can become extremely serious. And then you can realize like, well, look, this is the game too. You know, the game of pretending that we're really, really different when underneath it all, we're absolutely the same and we're interconnected and, and we're one. But we're mm -hmm. just playing this fantastic, you know, bizarre game where we're pretending to be exactly who we're not. Mm -hmm. and when you do that and you realize that and, and it's a way to look at it. And so, you know, cause it can be a really dreadful, stressful thing when you consider, oh, well, you know, seems like everyone is against everyone and and then it can be really heavy like i said you know at the beginning like it feels like you're going through the airport and you're carrying like 500 pounds of luggage and it just feels very stressful and serious but if you can have that door open you kind of peek and kind of realize oh yeah they're just playing they don't really mean it mm -hmm. you know? because underneath they know they know the secret that you know that they themselves don't even really want to admit <laughs> that you know this self that they think is so divided it's just an illusion you know 
they're you know take away all the illusion and they're really just one all is one and one is all it's the truth so what's next for you what's your um what is your next book the premise of your next book uh so actually i kind of just finished it although that's the left brain pretending like anything actually gets finished because it never <laughs> does um but uh and i don't really have a title i'm playing around with a bunch of titles but the premise is really getting back like you said we have amnesia and i think that's there's a lot of truth to that if you look at psychology and philosophy we pretend like you know we just kind of popped up here you know a couple hundred years ago and the book really goes back more into anthropology and looking at um when did the mind really when did the thinking mind turn on mm. and i think it uh you know there's a lot of agreement that was about 40 to 70,000 years ago that the, that, I mean, so the universe was going along pretty harmoniously until about 70,000 years ago when our species, Homo sapiens, started to think. And, it, and it, that was kind of a qualitative shift and everything changed. And of course, the first thing humans did was annihilate all other forms of humanity on the earth. Mm. <laughs> there were six other forms of humans, you know, walking the globe, just like us. And we had no clue what happened to them. One theory is we just, you know, got rid of them because we're, you know, that's the thing about the thinking mind. It has this capacity to separate and divide and, and group people. So it was able to first look like, oh, it's us versus them. And our real uh, pro kind of the mixed blessing is, is that on one hand, well, we're all here because of it. You know, I mean, homo sapiens, I mean, we're, well, we all have this program to thank for our existence, but at the same time, we're still plagued with its programming. Yeah. Programming was it's us versus them. It's us versus them. And now we're kind of like, well, okay, it's just us. So now we're kind of turning the program on itself and going, we're taking our group of humans. And now we've, I mean, think about the globe. What a bizarre dream we've done. We, you know, the globe is this one interconnected thing and we've divided it. We've got lines all over the globe right now. Mm. There's a place on earth you can stand where you're not on one side of a line. Yeah. <laughs> the imaginary line of the mind, but, you know, we treat it as real. And so, and but I've really gone heavy into the exercises for the next book because I think you said this early on about Buddhism, that the trick about Buddhism is it's not a philosophical contemplation, it's a direct experience. And, you know, the whole point is directly experiencing it. And so I've come up with a bunch of puzzles and uh, problems and, and uh, exercises so you can really feel the thinking mind. So you can mm -hmm. really feel when you're in that process of thinking and feel when you're not, because it's a really distinct, subtle, but distinct kind of sensation when you're thinking. And it's a different sensation when you're listening to music or walking through nature. And when you learn to differentiate the two, that's when I think it can be um, helpful, to, like you said, opening that door, keeping that door open and letting mm -hmm. us kind of have that lifeline to who, like, who are we really? And as soon as you don't need, I don't, at least in my view, you don't really need to give all your possessions away and you know, sit on the side of a mountain or anything, um, or even meditate for four hours a day. Um, you just need that door open. Yeah. Now, at least that's my view. I mean, if the door is open for me, this has become a playful kind of fun ride. So. Mm. Maybe that can be the title, opening the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I think probably we can wrap this thing up if you'd like uh it's crazy like we talked about before it's already been like an hour and 15 minutes but i feel like we just 
been talking for 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you have anything that you'd like to say before we wrap this thing up? Well, just like you said, I mean, those moments where we're outside of time. Now, the tough thing about that is because we're outside of time, and then when the thinking mind comes back on, of course, it resets the clock. And I think those moments where we're outside of time, that is the door being open. Mm. That, that's the door, and that's a kind of connection. And it doesn't take a lot. I think even one conscious breath every so often. So even when I'm at the store and someone cuts in front of me and I feel the thinking mind on it, I just take one moment of conscious breathing. Not, not I don't sit and meditate or chant or anything. I just, you know, one conscious breath and it resets yeah. and it opens the door again. Mm. Like, okay, you know, but again, then you feel like this is a movie. Mm. You know? And it's mm-hmm. a play. This is theater. This is, you know, it's, and then you unplug the seriousness of it. Mm. So, unplug the seriousness. That's good. Yeah. That's great. This is a great conversation, Chris. I fun. like this. <laughs> Chris, how do you say your last name? Niebauer? Niebauer, yeah. Chris Niebauer, thank you so much for coming on. Author of uh, No Self, No Problem. Uh, I'll link everything in the description where you can get your books and your website and anything that you'd uh, anything else that you'd li- like to link, uh, just yeah, let me know. I kind of spend, I probably spend more time now on my YouTube page than I have before. All right, link that as well. Yeah, yeah thanks. I, I just sort of play around with these, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of peeking through, opening the door techniques and, and little talks. And, and so that's been kind of uh, something I've spent more time on. My webpage, I really need to go back and kind of update it. I, 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 I'm not technologically sophisticated enough to, to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> well, yeah, all the information is down below if anyone's interested. I'm definitely looking forward to your next book. Uh, it seems like uh, something along the lines of the conversation that we had today. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, you're always welcome to come back on here. Uh, maybe next time whenever you're going to release your book uh, whenever you want to just have a good conversation but like I said this was pretty awesome I thank you again and good luck going to the store playing (laughs) the game (laughs) all right well uh, if you have nothing else to say then have a good day